Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. I am Tom Mills and today we are bringing you the second podcast from our Netherlands series. This is coupled with a film we're going to be releasing this evening, the Utrecht Golf Club Japan film, which will be releasing at 7pm this evening, Tuesday the 24th of January. And in this episode, we speak to the club archivist of Japan, Ernst van den Dol, and we spoke to him about Colt's work in the Netherlands and, and how the club evolved over the last 90 years. Big thank you to our series sponsor, Footjoy, who helped us make this trip a reality. We're lucky to get partnered with such an iconic brand and Footjoy, the number one shoe on tour, trusted by more PGA players than any other. Tiny bit of history. Footjoy goes all the way back to 1857 where Frederick Packard, hence the name of one of the Premier Series models, broke away from his father's boot workshop to establish a shoe company focused on quality, performance and innovation. And 150 years later, they're still the best in the business. The first introduced membrane-free, waterproof shoe, first to bring you the soft spike and creators of timeless designs like the Classics, the Icon, the 1857 and now the Premier range. Once again, we're delighted to be partnering with Footjoy in this series. And for more information on Footjoy, head over to at Footjoy Europe or visit www.footjoy.co.uk. And without further ado, over to Ernst. Watch this. So you were saying about the eight, late 1890s, everything just came at the modern man all of a sudden, sports. A lot of, a lot of sports things came over from England, uh, you know, also in France. Uh, you had the Jockey Club, which was uh, founded, and um, people became interested in sports in general, and especially the landed gentry, the nobility, became interested in golf, mostly through one or two persons who introduced it here. Uh, a well-known person was Ernst Kramers, who spoke to... The circles were small. Everybody knew each other, each other, of course. So when they started in The Hague, he came over to Dorn, the mm-hmm. village near here, to give an informative evening, and people grew enthusiastic and found it after The Hague in 1893, they founded the Doornse Golf Club in 1894. And it started in Doorn, but after a few months they decided that the header was too complicated over there. And they found a new terrain in Driebergen, but they still kept the name the Doornse Golf Club. And they had a nine-hole course there where many competitions were played, but they were forced out of it because the proprietor of the estate wanted his estate back. So the club was forced to move. And Harry Colt was was already 20 years one of the top architects in Europe. And he was asked by the Kenimer Golf Club to develop the course there. And because everybody at the Kenimer knew people at the Dornse Golf Club, they thought, well, this is a very interesting idea. Let's ask Harry Colt uh, to develop our course. And he... Agreed, and he made a plan for nine holes here. And during that time, he was all over Europe. Uh, he developed at the same time, he, tra- he traveled from England to Holland and from Holland to Hamburg, where he mm. developed Falkenstein. Yeah, yeah. And he went to uh, Madrid, where, uh, and uh, to the Weirdly, north of Spain. there was like a division, wasn't there? Because Simpson worked a lot in France and some parts of Belgium. 
Belgium. And then Colt almost takes it on then beyond and into... It's almost like they had a dividing line of... I think that was unintentional. I think it, it works the same. You look for a good carpenter. You ask one of your friends, do you know a good carpenter? And they yes, say, I well, know. I know Johnson. And you ask yeah. Johnson. And so from from uh, knowledge of the game, uh, they asked Colt. And... Something is happening next door. The, 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 the Thursday, I, I Thursday ladies group. Someone's holding court in the other yeah, room. Perhaps they're closing down the clubhouse, <laughs> nailing so, nailing down doors. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I mean, I feel like a story about Japan is going to be a lot of a story about Colt and the involvement and the creation of this course. Played this morning, wonderful place. Before we get to that, can we almost jump back six or seven hundred years and talk about? the Dutch origins of golf, because before we started recording, you were saying some interesting stuff, I think, about golf and where we think the modern game that we know and love today possibly came from. Well, yes, uh, ball and stick games are perhaps as old as humanity. Uh, the inventor of the ball was perhaps just as important as the inventor of the wheel. Mm. Uh, but um, it's well known that during the 13th, 14th, 15th century, stick and ball games were played in Flanders and also in the Netherlands. And there were intensive um, ties between, for instance, Scotland and the Netherlands. And so the, uh, well, a theory is that those games were introduced into in Scotland from Flanders. And there are, there's proof of that. Also, linguistic proof of that because many terms in Scottish come from Flemish. Um, but uh, well, in the Netherlands, it developed in two ways: played on the outside, on ice and on land, and finally it developed into inland courses, which is the game of golf, which is written with a K, K O L F, which is played in courts in a building and it's quite small and from there on uh, the, the golf remained although it's very small today but the outside golf has disappeared mm -hmm. so we were talking just before we started to record this podcast um it's still it's still a sport you can play it's still some if you wanted to go play golf you could find a society that does it and play it um it's still an, an active sport. It's still an active sport, but played by uh, quite a few people. There's a Royal Dutch Golf Society, which has about 200 members, and there are about, I think, 10, 15 courses in the Netherlands, which play competition um, among each, each other. But it's difficult to, to start playing that. You have to have instructions. You have to find a place. But you could go there. You could go to, to a building, to a cafe where, where there's a course of golf. And when the rules are explained to you, you could do it. And it's very relaxing. It's, it's, it's a game for a beer and a relaxing Sunday, yeah. uh, Sunday mm. afternoon. Do you think um, the golf as we know it... Um came from golf or do you think they are separate entities well there is a there's a has been written a lot about this and, and many things are uncertain but from kind games like golf played on the outside the game of golf developed but in a in a 
let's say, in its own fashion. It, it, it certainly, the game as it's played over a golf course with, with bunkers and greens and so on, has certainly been deve- developed in, in uh, Scotland and not in the Netherlands. Mm. But perhaps the idea to play with sticks and balls on the outside, um, on grass, uh, was an idea from Flanders. Amazing. So your work as a historian here, uh, your um, neurologist by by trade, correct? Yes. Where does the the passion for the history come in, and how do you find the time? Because I get the sense that your job probably doesn't. It's probably not a light touch job. You must be a busy boy. So where do you find the time, and how do you? Where does the passion come from for the history? Well, it's always difficult to ask where passion comes from. Sometimes it's natural. Uh, but uh, well, neurologists are uh, what we call, uh, yes, let's say, an, an intellectual part of medicine. Uh, it it uh, involves the brain and thinking about the function of the brain and how it works. So there are many people in neurology who are interested in secondary things like history and. I was interested in history and from history in general and history of medicine grew history of golf because golf is at least as fascinating as medicine. <laughs> <laughs> Some would argue more. <laughs> but it is, a, it is a great game when you understand the history and the connection because there's something to understanding the tapestry of the courses in the Netherlands and you know where a, you know where cult's design principles come from and how that this would feel like a a golden age course if you have a hundred years old versus something that's new built. And I think an appreciation for the history is key. You've written a wonderful book here. It's in Dutch, I will add. So I don't, I'm, I, it's going to look great on the bookshelf. It's unlikely to be to be read in full until I've com- completely learned how to speak the, the language. Um, can you sort of tell us a little bit about the course? I mean, on the back, you've put a, a brilliant letter from Colt in here, which basically says, you know, that the sites is one of the best inland courses I've ever seen. I think you can read work, it. And the work appears to, appears to be quite satisfactory. I hope that everything will go well during the winter months. You, with kind regards, yours sincerely, H.S. Colt, P.S. My secretary, my secretary will sign this as I have to leave home very shortly. <laughs> and that was written in November 1927. So obviously Colt was prolific. He had... I'm assuming that the, the, the club had a lot of recommendations from friends and associates to use Colt. He must have been given a wonderful piece of land, but what he's left there is absolutely outstanding. What do you know about Colt's involvement in building the course? Well, I've uh, read and, and and kept most of his... Uh, no, no, we, the club has kept, I must say, to be honest, uh, most of his correspondence with um, the man who was uh, secretary of the club at that time, Mr. Pelletier. And um, yes, well, you see, Colt was very diplomatic. Of course, I used what he wrote, that we have one of the best courses, inland courses on Europe, but I've discovered in the course of the years that he used to write similar letters to other clubs that he developed. <laughs> so every, to keep everybody happy. But we still see it as, as it true. As true. Uh, and I put it also on the on the uh, plaquette that you see over there on, yeah. the, on the house, uh, just to uh, inspire people when they start on the first hole. But Colt worked very fast. I was very impressed by his, also his his letters that he wrote to the secretary of the Kennebec Golf Club, which was developed first before the pond. Uh, you see, he came and 
he walked through the through the country and in his mind already he saw, saw the possibilities. And he asked, uh, on the Canterbury, he asked for uh, 180 sticks of three feet and he put out the course and he went back to England and a few days later they had the whole course designed. And I re recently um, read um, a story of Swinley Forest, which was about the same. He walked through the forest and he said, here we'll come, and he started with the past threes. Mm -hmm. And then from the past threes, he developed the other courses. And then in uh, 27, 28, uh, he designed the first nine hole the first nine holes, and there was a discussion about who would uh, do the construction because he liked somebody from England. But uh, the firm Copain was chosen, a very famous Dutch uh, garden architect and developer, also uh, who also constructed the Kenner. And uh, the work was very satisfactory, so he was very enthusiastic about Mr. Copain. And um, the first nine were holes were opened and everybody was very happy and uh, uh, very soon the club decided to develop the second nine holes which were opened in 1932. Was that to the, the back to nine or the front nine the or is it a mix of both? It's a mix. Yeah, okay. so the, the, the first nine holes as they were produced, do they exist? Yes, they now? still exist but with different teeing grounds. Okay. For instance, you played the fifth. I don't know if it left a lasting memory, yeah. but We're the fifth is a par five, oh, no, which sure. goes to the that. right. But the teeing ground was first more to the left. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, th so the design in its entirety is pretty much identical. Just a few, just a few tee boxes pushed about. Uh, yeah, and and one green, uh, two greens have been changed. That's the the fifth. It has been. Um, put more to on the right side, but it will be changed in the coming years. So you're going back to the original? Uh, well, more or less, okay. yes. Well, to keep the, the spirit of the original hole. And the 12th was lengthened, was one of the dramatic stories of the 60s. We had a president, Mr. Kalkoen van Limmen, and we had a very small uh, group of members and Mr. Kalkoen van Limmen was a very good golfer, uh, also a good international amateur, but uh, he acted on his own when he decided to lengthen the 12th. And suddenly the members discovered that he had uh, moved the green backwards and that... Oh, so he didn't lengthen it by moving the T? No, he lengthened, he lengthened it by, it moving, by the moving the green. Yes. So I was just thinking, oh, yeah, I suppose that could play better from a bit shorter. But then I say that about every golf hole. So he moved the green back. Yes. It's actually still how, a very how, nice green. How, but yeah. Yeah. how far did, they, uh, did he add to it? About 30 meters. Yeah, so you, okay. you, there's that little area of grass, actually. So uh, when uh, you say that, Backwards into a hill. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, well, uh, but by and large, it's pretty much how did that? How did that go down with the membership? Uh, it ended his presidency. Oh, mm. really? Yes. But he still uh, remained a very much appreciated member, but uh, they, people didn't like it. And how did he get away with it? You know, it's not it's not quick to just develop a green, is it? You know? No, no, no. But well, you can you can start by saying, "Oh, we're doing some course management," and then suddenly people discover during the course management that many th uh, there's a profound change in yeah. the whole hole. But it, it was corrected later, about 20 years ago, the, the green was corrected in its present shape. Okay, so, is it, so it's now back to its original place? Yes. Oh, okay. No, not its original place, its original form. Oh, because okay. also the T has been moved backward. Yeah, okay.
But th those are details. Uh, uh, 90% of the course is still as it was developed by, Col by Colt. So during the time of the development and, and Colt was 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 coming along and saw that saw the course, what was the state of Dutch golf like? Was it was it a popular sport? No, it wasn't a popular sport at all. There were a few thousand players who mostly knew all each other. Mm. If you say uh, reports of matches in those days in in sporting journals, that so you always meet to get the same names. Yeah, perhaps in professional golf now also, but uh, there were about five thousand, six thousand players at um, at a maximum. Yeah. Mm. So, you've, so you've got very few golf courses when when did that start to change in the netherlands well many golf courses uh, were constructed around 1930 let's say the eindhoven and the dommel and then it stopped more or less and uh, during the 50s and 60s a few courses were added uh, yes and then the great golfing boom came in the 90s and the 80s what do you think caused that Everything became more popular. People became more affluent and uh, yeah, interested in sports in general. And, and, and well, we, nowadays we have 250 golf clubs in the Netherlands. Yeah. It, it, it was an enormous uh, race to uh, to develop golf courses. I get the sense there's a pretty uh, strong relationship between the old clubs within the Netherlands. You have the, is it the old nine? Yes, it's called the old nine, which is very interesting because it's, in fact, it's the old eight, what I always say, and Broekpolder. <laughs> yes. Broekpolder is a club at Rotterdam, which was founded in 1970, but sees itself as the successor to the Rotterdam right. Golf Club, which was founded in, I think, 1936. Yeah. Also, the Rotterdam Golf Club is not one of the older nine golf clubs, okay. but Broekpolder is there and is there to stay. Okay. <laughs> but that's a that's a sort of a collection of courses where, you know, I'm guessing there's some friendship there, there's probably some matches and days, and members of those clubs can play at each other's venues as well, can't they? There's a sort of reciprocal yes that exists uh, for a, a limited fee. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk to me about the course then. So, in in, in terms of your his, you know, historical work, looking at the work that Colt did, as you say, working quickly, I find that amazing, but. What you've got is an amazingly natural-looking golf course. It's it's a masterpiece in many respects. I'm sure that's not all cult. Clearly, a lot of that's down to the building work and 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 who produced the course and tried to get the right contours and put the greens in. Did you stumble across anything particularly interesting when you were doing stuff for the book about how the course was constructed or? Um, well, there's a little bit in there. The firm of Copain still exists. And they have an archive, but a very limited archive of, of how it was done. Yeah. And Cole wrote also about that because he inspected the course and, and, and discussed the grass and where they should buy new grass and how this should be done and how that should be done. But he was very involved in all construction, also the construction of the greens. One of the members who was very good on grass uh, explained to me that uh, because the irrigation was limited at that time, many greens were built with a slight hollow so that the water, when it fell, would remain on the green to keep the green moist. Right, really, so they sort of almost bowled them a mm, little. So I don't know if it's true, but uh, it's an interesting aspect, of course. And Colt wrote also about too many rabbits and, well, all aspects of the course that had to be uh, attacked by the committee. 
What What are your favourite features of the course? Uh, well, there are a few points where you, uh, where you stand and you look over the course and you think, ooh, this is beautiful. It's uh, on the 16th and on the elevated tee of the 17th. <laughs> And, um, well, also perhaps when you are at the crossing point of the 4th, the 8th, and the ninth, where you see all three holes yes. played. 4th is a wonderful green with the bank that comes in off the left. And and none of uh, this is modern. This is all put down 100 years ago. No, but it's, it remains fascinating, you know. Everybody can construct a large pond or water in front of a green yeah. or a green on an island in a pond. It's always difficult. But the genius of an architect, especially like Colt, is, uh, and he wrote about that, everybody knows that, if you have a par four, it should be difficult to make a two, a two to reach the green in two, mm -hmm. but it should be relatively easy to reach the green in three, yeah. so that you always have a chance of a par. And also, there has been a lot of discussion here about it, that the course was, of course, not for high drop shots, because people didn't play it. People played long played running, running shots. So it's about the angles and using Yes, and the hills, the correctable. And, and when you play cleverly, you can um, direct the ball along a hill onto the green, for instance, on the first here. There's quite a few kickers as well on the greens, aren't there? There's quite a few shots I saw today. Mm. I mean, we <coughs> played with Byron, who's, you know, a brilliant golfer. I mean, he's been, I think, Dutch amateur champion and he's very a, a number of things. So these weren't accidents, but you can see he's intentionally using the contours within the greens to move the ball and mm. spin it around. So when that gets firm, I bet it comes alive, you know, when the course is fast. Yeah, the course is more interesting when it's dry. Yeah. But people don't like that. They like it's harder. Yeah, <laughs> it's difficult. Yeah. Um, one of the consequences of working quickly, as, as Colt did, is you kind of can't be on site that much. Um, did he visit often during the construction? Did he come back on completion? What do we know about that? Yes, well, uh, there are also correspondence about that. He traveled a lot and he came regularly to inspect, which was easier for him because he was involved in many courses around uh, Northern Europe and in Spain. So on his travels, he visited, uh, very uh, intelligent, he visited a few golf clubs and wrote got back to england and wrote what should be changed he made notes and those notes are left on, on golf clubs and you could see what his suggestions were mm. so he was a traveling uh, golf salesman <laughs> was there ever a temptation to put more in because we're in a you know we're in a heavily wooded area where the course is completely carved out within that but there's loads of space around was there ever throughout the last hundred years any temptation to try and add a further nine another 18 holes I get the sense it's not quite the Dutch way to, to try and build loads of golf courses on one site. Do you mean here or do yeah, you? Yeah, I don't know. I just I get the sense that, you know, Kenham is obviously a 27-hole site, but by and large, even though there's a bit of land, everyone's quite comfortable the fact that it's just an 18-hole course. And well, If you've small. got something perfect, why improve on it? Yeah. yeah the, the Germans have a an expression for that, which is called Schlimmbessen, that is making it worse by making it better. Yeah, there's a lot to <laughs> That's be said. So Can we good. cover that again? Schlimmbessen. Schlimmbessen, which so, basically means people having something great, then thinking, well, let's make it even better, and then it and gets then worse. destroying it. Yes. Schlimm is worse, no, and Besson is improve. 
So slim definition. Improve it to make it worse. I think that's my new favorite saying. <laughs> yeah. But the number of clubs that do it because they want to let's build a bigger clubhouse. You have the most incredible clubhouse here. Why would you ever want to change it? You know, these like you say, you've got a great golf course. Why would you want to compromise that with more golf? I could give you a uh, let's say an, an example that people perhaps won't like, but it's the same with Brexit. You've got something that's very good. Mm. You think, well, we've got something that's very good. It could be even better. And then you change it, and you discover after a few years that there are a lot of disadvantages to it. Mm. The, that's is that, I mean, just let's just it's human nature. That, well, this is it. Let's dig in on that a little bit because you know part of your work human nature is to always think the grass is greener on the other side perhaps an english expression i don't know if yes, that's no, lost that's in translation, we have the same expression in dutch is, is that is that true is that human nature yes it's human nature from from my profession for instance plastic surgery you know people start improving small things and they look at themselves and they say well this could be better mm. and they end like robots mm. <laughs> and it becomes there's a point of elasticity where mm. yeah you c- you can, you don't need also in plastic jobs, su- in plastic surgery bigger is not always better. <laughs> no, 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 no. Can, can 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 it's a law of diminishing returns. Speaking of 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 Schlimbessen, yeah, very good. I'm fascinating um, on this topic. This is, is amazing. Are the Greens Committee here pretty strident in thinking? Okay, we don't do anything big. We don't make any big changes. All we do is maintain it, make sure the bunkers are as good as they can be, make sure the playing services are as good as they can be? Or do you get some people come in and say, I think, right, some sweeping changes need to happen? Well, there have always been members who thought that sweeping changes should be made, but mostly we keep it um, as it is intended. And in the course of the years, of course, changes, you know, trees grow, grass grows. Uh, When we have got a small um, movie, uh, which you can visit on YouTube about the opening of the first nine, where people dance here on the terrace. And the first ball is hit, and everybody runs onto the first uh, hole. Brilliant. And you see a enormous, um, the word escaped me, but there are no trees at all. Mm. Expanse. Um, yeah, an enormous expanse. expanse. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's very fast. It's, mm. it, there are nearly no trees at all. So all the trees that are there are partly have grown. Mm. And you, you see a small tree, and when you don't take any notice, about uh, five mm. years later, it's large. It's it's a really big but this was the wooded area here when the course was built, though. So was it all? It was, was more heather. It was more heather than it is now. Because now it's a full wooded yes mansion, isn't it? All around. But you can see when you yeah. when you come. <coughs> to the club, you can see that most trees are not very old. There are there were, are hundred year trees. Uh, there are, but many trees are younger. Were they planted um, for the purpose of golf in many ways? So no, they weren't there for separation of holes or anything. No, it just th- happened. This was uh, this was a very poor area. You know, heather. What can you do with heather? Sheep and heather, and not much more than that. So what the owners of the the estate did was plant trees for um, se- uh, to sell wood. Mostly for okay. the mines in the Netherlands, in the mm. south of the Netherlands, for mine construction. Mm. And then, then it was profitable. But and mm. later, uh, the company that owned all this area uh, later sold part of it for housing estate. So the, mm. the village of Zeist here in the neighborhood uh, mm. was developed in the in the nineteen hundreds, nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. And it's all kind of 
because now, like, like, like Sam says, if if you'd have just taken me out there, I would have thought that that was carved out of a woodland, as opposed to. And it's interesting, partly because yeah, we yeah. um we went to Eindhoven and played there yesterday, and there's some old photographs of Eindhoven, and similarly, the trees are as big as the humans. You know, it's it's just. There's but why like is that? Again, it's human nature, isn't there? So clubs are really, yeah, you know, and so I find clubs are really quick to put radical changes into their courses. Yeah, I mean, look the, at that. The, these are images yeah. from the construction of the of the first nine holes, and you see that there are trees, yeah, but uh, it's quite meager. There are not many trees, not as, as it is now. I mean, it doesn't uh, look appetizing, does it? It looks like quite rough ground, and you look at you know where it is now today. It's incredible. Well. There are many pictures, more or less the same. I, I know pictures of St. George's Hill, you mm. know, also mm, constructed by coal. You see the same pictures, horses, manure, trees being felled. Yeah. Um, why, why do humans, well, certainly humans at golf clubs, react slightly differently when they talk about tree removal in the context of a golf course? Do you see what I mean? Some members seem to almost have a romantic obsession with a tree on a golf course. People don't like changes. Mm. But yet they quite like to make slim besson and changes that they, you know what I mean? I think, I, I agree with you, they don't want to see a tree go, but they'll be quite happy to see the members' lounge completely redecorated. And it, oh, that, oh, no, even that leads to discussions. We've had uh, a recent redecoration here. The tables at which you sit are, have recently been added. Well, and on a club, it's always like this. You do something and a part of the membership uh, disagrees. Mm. You just need majority, don't you? Because you can't please everybody. Yes, and, and there's something to be said for to, to appoint somebody to execute it. Yeah. And no discussion about it. We have to accept it. Because if, if you were... What, uh, one of my examples is if you would have asked the populace of France if Versailles should be built, they would have said no, waste of money. Mm -hmm. But now it's there, everybody admires it. Mm. That's a difficult thing about constructing like, th like that. But uh, there, many trees have been felled here because uh, uh, about 20 years ago everybody realized that the course was changed, that it was not in its advantage and that it could be made better in its original shape. For instance, on the 15th, the short par 3, mm. on the left there's a hill, and that hill is part of the course. And it was overgrown with trees, and they removed mm. the trees and the hole was better. And it just comes alive I think, again. I think the thing is, you know, if you, if you stared at the sun, you wouldn't see it move, and you just think, oh, the sun is there, and you look back an hour later and it's somewhere else. And it's the same with golf courses and trees. If you look at them, day by day nothing changes and it slowly creeps up on you that these trees are just very very slowly just overtaking and i think that's the the thing that a lot of people forget is that yeah it might have been like this yesterday and you've you're attached to this tree but it wasn't like it a year ago and it really wasn't like it 10 years ago and it's just it's very difficult for a club like like Japan to just keep on top of the playing corridors this is what we're trying to maintain. This is what we're trying to keep. And just make not taking it back too far, not letting it grow over, just maintaining the status quo is quite you difficult. Are, you have, sometimes you have to look back at how how was it if you have documents about it or photographs. You have to look at photographs of 50 years ago, how was the hole at that time. But people adapt to slow changes. You know, if you there are moving stories of people of 90 who meet each other in 
a retirement home and fall in love <laughs> and so on. And when one of the partners would have been 20, he would never have fallen in love with somebody of 90. But yeah, yeah, when yeah. you're 90 yourself, <laughs> yeah. your view changes, you know? It's strange. And I, I, I almost want to go down. <clears throat> We've had a previous guest of the podcast on who's quite big on, you know, heuristics and behavioral science and looks at things like that. It's quite an interesting topic. Um, do you see anything else in the human brain or the ways we as human operates, how we as humans operate? Do you see anything in there, in golf specifically, that you find fascinating? The optimistic nature of the, of human beings. You know, when you've played a very bad round, you always uh, think and hope that the next round will be better. Mm. I mean, for, in, in my case, it can't often get much worse. So, do you think we are optimistic? <laughs> so, do you mean golfers are more optimistic than they would otherwise be in other parts of their life, or do you mean no? That's human nature, but it, it expresses itself in in golf. You think? And, and uh, yeah, and, hopeful, uh, very hopeful, very creatures. hopeful. Yes. I mean, not many people uh, play the round of their life, literally the, the lowest round they've ever played, and don't say, "Oh, and I left a couple out there. I mm. could have." I could have done better. Yes. You know, there's always that that thing that we 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 think we can do better. I do think there's a, there's a really fair saying with this, and I know we're going off topic here, but this is quite interesting. We've got an expert with us. People say that you know, playing golf with someone gives you a very quick insight into their personality and what they're like as an individual. That's an old and theory. It's, it's yes. a very it's a it's almost as true a reflection of it's a human being playing a game of golf with someone. I don't know why that is. Is it just because the game is so finely balanced that it brings out all the emotions in you in a way that's almost uncontrollable? Or what? Well, the, the game is technically uh, difficult and it's a slow game and you play it for many hours. So you've got, if you play a game that lasts 10 minutes, it's more difficult to judge, judge your character. But if you play for four hours, you get a better view. And it's very tempting some, sometimes to cheat. And if you look at it, a lot of people are, can be discovered to cheat a little bit. Mm. Say, well, it's easy to cheat. It's easy to cheat. And you think, oh, that's not fair. That that happened to me. That's not fair. I should be compensated for mm. it. So I may dro drop my ball here or I give it a kick out of the header or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wouldn't have missed that part anyway if I was trying. Yeah. Yes, or there was a dog barking. And if a dog <laughs> hadn't barked, I wouldn't have missed that putt. <laughs> uh, so that putt was good, you know. And, 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 and it uh, relies on honesty at its foundation, doesn't it? And it's you get so many bad breaks and good breaks in equal measure. And it's one of those, you know, if, if we ran, you can only run to your level and you run consistently at the level you're capable of running. At golf, you can play way better than you're ever capable of playing golf one day and you can turn it the next day and play significantly worse than you're, you know you're capable. Mm. And I think all of those frailties bring out a lot in people where I, I I think there's a lot of truth in that saying, for what it's worth, that you can you can really get the measure of a human being when you play with them. Yes, and and most people play golf for many years, and during those many years, you always you all have had a moment when you thought you had it all, and you, everything was under control. You are in the flow, and you hit it where you want it. Mostly, it lasts perhaps half an hour. <laughs> And then you lose it again, but you will always dream of mm. getting that back. Yeah. What's happening in the brain when you're in flow state? Because, you know, sports psychologists talk about this, don't they? That flow state. Most golfers of any ability can relate to that feeling where 
you almost feel you're doing stuff subconsciously to an elite level. Mm. What's happening? Is the brain in a different space when it's in flow state? And people, what people mean? always think that neurologists understand that, but that's completely wrong. We don't understand anything at all. <laughs> um, one theory is that you uh, close down a part of your brain, especially the con the control part where you think continually see about what you're doing. You shouldn't think about what you're doing. Uh, you know, perhaps the book by Homer Kelly, The Golfing Machine, mm. which was that you train for so long, for so many times, that you become a golfing machine. And you become instinctive. Yes, but what, what happens, you always start to think about your game. Oh, I shouldn't hit it to the right because there's water there or there are people there. What happens when you think I don't shoot hit it to the right, you hit it to the right. That's how your brain works. <laughs> well... I once knew a cardiologist, a very, very gifted man, who said, I've reached everything in life. I've had a, a beautiful academic career. I can play violin marvelously. Why can't I play golf? And he couldn't play golf. <laughs> you could see him hacking his way around the course with grass flowing up everywhere. But uh, And he was fascinated by that. Dragging it back to uh, the course itself momentarily, because I'm just a bit concerned that Sam is going to be down this vortex, down this rabbit hole for quite some time. So bringing it back to the golf uh, the golf course. Um, did Harry Colt visit when the A-team were completed? And do we have any uh, any correspondence about his, his impressions of the place when it was finished? Yes, uh, especially the first nine holes. There is less correspondence uh, regarding the second uh, nine holes, but there are letters that he was very satisfied with the work also with the work of uh, the firm Copain in constructing the course. Mm. You, uh, yes. Uh. The club has obviously grown from strength to strength. You've now got quite an active membership. About how many? About 800, did I hear? 850 about. 850, which is really strong, strong membership. And the clubhouse that we're sat in, the beautiful clubhouse that we're sat in, um, is it from the same period as? Yes, it's from the uh, from 1928. It's uh, fr uh, from the first nine holes. This clubhouse was constructed. Absolutely gorgeous building, isn't it? And um, what do you think is in the future for for Utrecht, Japan? <laughs> well, we are in the in the happy position that many people want to want to join the club. You know, um, are you at your limit now? Is eight fifty? The, the yes, yeah, that's yes, the and, and, and that's that's quite enough. And and the club has changed. Uh, in the sixties, there were about four hundred and fifty members, and the club was struggling. But nowadays, the club is doing financially well, although that can change. Also, <laughs> uh, we don't own the ground, okay. Um, so uh, we pay rent for the ground, and that's uh, quite an amount. But we've got uh, safety. Uh, regarding to the owners of the ground that we can continue for many years now uh, and um, well with the economic situation and the changing of the way of playing the game uh, many clubs are struggling in the Netherlands and the Dutch Golf Federation is uh, looking for ways to improve that because the tendency is that people don't want to join a club anymore they want to pay to be free golfers mm. You know, not to pay an annual membership or an entrance fee or whatever. No, they pay a contribution to society and then they 
pay only when they play. Mm. And that's the modern tendency. And the modern tendency is also, it seems, to play nine holes. And not more than that, because everybody's in a hurry, you know, mm. and, and 18 holes takes We like to play lots of holes, don't we? We're going to try for 36 today. I think there's something to be said for more nine-hole golf, but I, I, I think, um, you know, it is interesting that you you observed that, and I think there's other, you know, it's just a culturally there's different differences to the sport than, than what we're used to in the UK, which is something, you know, this series is also about. Um, just do you think, just just before, because we, we I know we're, we're using... A lot of your time, and we do thank you a lot for 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 coming on to chat to us. But just before we we um we let you go, do you think that Dutch golf is um doesn't have its fair share of visibility, or do you think that it it kind of keeps itself you know a little bit under the radar um as being golf as a destination? No, golf has become quite popular in the Netherlands. You shouldn't worry about that. For the Dutch Golf Federation, a worrying aspect is uh, the age of the players. They want to to keep the youth mm. discovering golf and playing golf and are always wondering how to do that. Here on the club, we've got many young players who are very enthusiastic, so we don't worry about it at all. Um, well... A comparison. You've got restaurants, and there are uh, marvelous restaurants who exist for many, many years and never have a problem in attracting customers. And there are restaurants who are doing well, but struggling and disappearing and coming again. I think I have all confidence that the pond with its marvelous course and its its nice clubhouse will go on for many years, and we don't worry about it at all. I certainly don't doubt that. And with that, Ernst, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's been fascinating. And uh, it's been great to to hear more about the club and also some of the other stuff you're talking about there. So a big thank you. Yeah, and, huge uh, thank you. Thanks for having us as well at the club. What thank you for having me. An incredible <laughs> special place. So thank you. Thank Watch you. Watch this.